I'm Gay Dalzell, and this is America's Women, A Legacy of Change. When World War II broke out, because like everybody else, I marched straight to a defense plan. I worked in a segregated shop. After the war ended, we had this conflict of knowing that the war had given us employment opportunities that were not going to exist afterwards. I do think that when the women got out to work during World War II, they probably realized that these men weren't this magical, <laughs> special gray matter up there that they could <laughs> do things that we couldn't do. In the 1940s and 50s, women's roles changed in unforeseen ways. World War II had a tremendous impact on all Americans, and the 1950s, with the emphasis on the home, the growth of suburbs, and the civil rights movement, created new challenges both for women and for American society. In We're Here to Work, Part 3 of America's Women, A Legacy of Change, we'll explore just what those changes meant. When World War II started, Mary Morgan was 17. Now we've lost in history what was so big about World War II and why would we even be noticing it. There is no concept now of what World War II was in the fact that it was total mobilization. I, I can't tell you what I did in the Korean, during the Korean War. I know what I was doing in the Vietnam War, I was protesting. I don't think anybody under 40 maybe has any concept that World War II was 100% mobilization. No one and no thing was not tremendously influenced by that war. The coming of World War II had a tremendous impact on the nation in general and on women in particular. While the war itself lifted the American economy out of the Depression, the need for wartime workers demanded that the nation call upon an untapped labor source, America's women. Susan Hartman, professor of history at Ohio State University. Ever since the late 19th century, more and more women were entering the labor force. And because of the extreme need for workers during World War II, that really accelerated that trend. Um, there were about 12 million women working in 1940 on the eve of Pearl Harbor. Another 6 million women joined the labor force during the course of the war. So the number of, of women work, working outside the home grew by about 50 percent, which is an enormous jump in just a few years. And the government began to uh, establish a propaganda campaign to bring women into the labor force to replace the men who had gone overseas. Joanne Meyerwitz is Associate Professor of History at the University of Cincinnati. So there was this tremendous campaign. There were billboards, there were newsreels, there were leaflets passed out to bring women into the labor force and also especially to bring them into the kinds of jobs women hadn't held before. Peggy Williams, come right in. 
Hello, Sarah. Sorry to come so early, but I... Oh, you know, we're always up way before this. Yes, I know. That's why I came... Sit down. Will you have a cup of coffee? I, I think there's some left. No, thanks, Sarah. There's... There's something I wanted to talk about. You see, I'm thinking of getting a job and... A job? Where? Why, at the factory. Oh, they're taking on a lot of women now, you know, for defense orders, and they're paying them high wages. I'd make a lot of money, and, well, I'd be doing something for the war, too. Tom and I that was my first employment. I had one year of college. A recruiter came to the college in West Virginia, recruiting workers, and it was always phrased, quote, for the war effort, unquote. And I could see my school dissolving. The professors were, would not be there one week. All the men were being pulled out. And I was a teenage computer, not a computer programmer. Please remember, computers had not been uh, invented. All the computing was done by young, underpaid women with a pencil and a paper and a calculator. We were called computers. We did the calculations for uh, uh, groups of aeronautical engineers doing research and development at Wright Field for the Air Force. So Mary Morgan moved from West Virginia to Wright Field in Dayton. She was just one of millions of young women who worked for the war effort. Women migrated, they left small towns to move to the cities where war industry was taking place. So as men were going overseas, women and other men were moving into the cities to take jobs in war industry and in other, in other jobs as well. Do you hear that whistle down the line? I figure that it's engine number 49. She's the only one that'll sound that way on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. There were 200,000 girls in town, all about 1920, early 20s, and they did come from all over the United States. On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Arlene McCarthy moved, too, from Rockford, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. It was a move she thought she would never have made if it hadn't been for the war. On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, here she comes. I really felt that I was doomed to stay in my hometown, never go to college, probably work in an office and meet someone somehow or other, and and never go anywhere, never travel anywhere, never do anything. It was one of the smartest things I ever did, I think. Actually, women did practically every kind of job imaginable during the war, and their numbers increased in just about every area, with the exception of domestic service. And actually, the war did help a lot of, particularly black women, to escape from domestic service. They could get better jobs. and. The numbers of black women um, engaged in domestic service fell during the war. But almost every other category of employment increased, and one of the most dramatic, of course, was in production, and particularly in heavy industry. Mobilizing women for the war effort meant changes had to be made in traditional living styles. More unmarried women moved out of their parents' houses, out of their hometowns. They doubled up in crowded housing conditions. For the first time, large numbers of married women were working, and they needed child care. Well, you know, Sarah, that I couldn't leave Tommy unless I was perfectly sure he was getting the right care. And, well, I, I wondered whether 
whether I could hire you to give Tommy his breakfast and let him stay here until noon when Ellen could come for him and give him his lunch. Well, good gracious, I haven't cared for small children for so long. Oh, Tommy's so good, Sarah. Oh, I guess Tommy and I could get along all right. Oh, I suppose I could get someone to come in, but, well, I'd feel so much better if you'd take him. The government only later in the war entered into the child care business for the first time providing some funds for child care, but it was really too little and too late. It was never enough funding to provide child care uh, for anywhere near the majority of children who needed it. But the fact that the government did provide some funding demonstrated that they realized that women's roles were changing. The image of American women was becoming more complex. You like my smile, you like my style, well why don't you make me know it? You like my walk, you like my talk, well there's only one way to show it. The 1940s is interesting because when we think of World War II and women, we tend to think of Rosie the Riveter, the popular icon of the woman in overalls with bulging muscles. But Rosie the Riveter wasn't all there was to World War II. It was the era of the pinup girl. Give me some skin, my friend. So that not only do you have new images of Rosie the Riveter, and you also have new images of women in bathing suits posing. Uh, it's not as if there were no there was no cheesecake earlier, but it became much more widespread and popular during World War II. It was officially sanctioned by the U.S. government. The Army's magazine, sanctioned magazine, called Yank Magazine, featured pinup pictures. For the past 15 minutes, Yank, the Army Weekly, has brought you the G.I. Jive, a program designed exclusively for the enlisted man or any serviceman with a radio. They use words like Broad, twist, floozy, babe, wait. Ah, uh, you can stop right there. Got no time for women. Just enough time to send you five cents worth of Benny Goodman's airmail special. And it was also seen as something that was even patriotic for a woman to be posing uh, for, to boost soldiers' morales. And the soldiers also decorated their tanks and the noses of their airplanes with pictures of nude or semi-nude women. Well, you certainly would find cheesecake photographs of women earlier um, in magazines like Esquire magazine, men's magazine. So it's not as if it didn't exist earlier. And you would also find, certainly find images of competent women earlier, although not so much women working in traditionally male jobs. The roles that women took on were much more diverse than just working for wartime industries. They got jobs in symphony orchestras. For example, many major symphonies hired women for the first time. Uh, medical schools relaxed their quotas so that more women were able to study to be doctors. Um, women were encouraged to take science and engineering courses in college. Um, women even wore Santa Clauses probably for the first time uh, during World War II. These new roles that women were allowed to take on changed the way they thought about themselves. I would think that um, only a man could be a lawyer or a doctor or a college professor, that these things were something that I could never, never hope to attain, that, that there was something wrong with my brain, that I would not be able to do this. <laughs> yes, uh, certainly when you are accomplishing something, you have the direct proof that you can do something. But we must forget the women in the war who still did the laundries 
uh, women were employed in the laundries and they still served in the hospitals and they still worked in the cafeterias. But we've got to remember the women who picked the cotton and my grandmother who milked the 13 cows. Uh, before World War II, you know, the, the women in the cotton mills in New England and in the shirt factories in South Carolina, those women were in uh, jobs before World War II. We, we can't overlook those. There was another area where women served during the war. For the first time in American history, women were given an official place in the military. Over 350,000 women served in almost every activity except actual combat. And after the war, women stayed in the military. But until the 70s, they served in all female units. Let me add another area of important change here, which was for African-American women during World War II. They were able for the first time to find jobs outside of domestic service and agriculture in large numbers. Before World War II, the vast majority of African-American women were either domestic workers uh, or some kind of service work like chambermaids or dishwashers, maybe in hotels, or else in agricultural labor. And the tremendous demand for labor during World War II opens up new jobs in industry for African-American women. The wide variety of jobs it opened up for women was empowering. As they gained self-confidence in their abilities, they were ready to take on more challenges. For African-American women in particular, different and better jobs continued to open after the war. But for many women, the end of World War II signaled a change in direction. They were asked to take on a different challenge. You know, I think you're right to quit the factory. There are 34 million women in the United States who think homemaking is important. Now, I'm not advising you to stop working because I minded a bit feeding your young son his breakfast and, and looking after him in the forenoon. No, I'd advise you to look after your home because I believe a lot of future trouble will be saved now if the women who should stay at home will stay. Women certainly fought the war because of their heavy involvement in the economy, um, because they also contributed in terms of military service. They contributed as volunteers in a variety of, of ways. They didn't win it in the sense that they did not keep the gains that they had made during the war. They did not keep most of the gains that they had made during the war. And in some areas, they even slipped behind. One of the areas they slipped behind in was education. When the war was over, I wrote a letter to the Chicago Art Institute asking to apply there. And I got a letter back saying that they were full up and any spaces that they had they were giving to returning veterans. In absolute numbers, there were more women going to college in 1950 than there were in 1940. But as a proportion of all college-educated people, they, they slipped. In 1940, women were 40% of, of college students. In 1950, they were only 25% uh, of college students. And that was because the war gave men benefits that were not available to women, uh, to most women, because they did not serve in the military. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? 
she said to me. We assume that after the war, all the women went back home, and in the 50s, the only possible role for women uh, was wifehood and motherhood. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. I think after that big push of that three long years of working, I think a lot of women really wanted to go home and just have a, a place to be and make a home. I really do. Um, I, I, I think after they got it and a few years went by, they probably decided enough <laughs> and wanted to break, break out of that. I think one of the things that happens right at the end of the war is that the GI Bill made it possible for young fellows who'd been in the service to get inexpensive loans to buy houses. Bob Daniel is Professor Emeritus of History at Ohio University. He was one of those returning GIs. And I lived in the Detroit area. You could buy a, a nice home, certainly suitable for a couple just getting started, for one month's payment. $125 down and 30 years to pay. Uh, now, you know, you'd pay through the nose in terms of interest over 30 years, but the fact is you could get into a spanking new home right at the end of the war. And this meant that you probably could afford, perhaps, to get married and not be ashamed because you, if you got married, you're going to have to live in some slum. Now you could live in a, probably a, a nicer house than either the girl or the fellow had come out of. So what you have in 46 and 7 and 8 is just an enormous focus on domesticity. Probably our government wanted us to be that way, wanted us to get out of the workforce, I'm sure they did, and um, everybody went along with that. And, and everyone was happy to do it, I think, at the time. I didn't realize it at the time, but thinking back, it was the cute little housewife with her little bobbed hair and her swingy skirt and her doing her housework in high heels. <laughs> no, it, it was definitely, um, it was the thing. If it can be had, by that dream. Imagine me on our first anniversary with someone like you in the nursery. Oh, it doesn't sound bad. And if it can be had, I'll buy that dream. When I ask my students, you know, what can you tell me about women in the 1950s? They say, June Cleaver, a woman in pearls, baking cookies, staying at home for her children, happy family life in the suburbs. And they have a couple different versions of this stereotype. One version is the feminist variant, which is that June Cleaver and Harriet Nelson were actually very unhappy women who were trapped in the home, who had 
been able to escape from the home during World War II and then were closed back in the cage when the war ended. As I recall, that decade, all I did was have babies. I didn't go to any movies. I'm hoping they didn't make very many good ones in the 50s. <laughs> uh, it was all right. I, I did feel somewhat overwhelmed because I had five, but so many other people were having large families too. Once again, you were in, in the same boat with, with other women who, who were staying home, and when we had moments, we would run across to each other's house and have coffee and, and bewail our <laughs> problems <laughs> in life. The stereotype of the 1950s I think is probably familiar to most of us, is the stereotype of June Cleaver or Donna Reed of the white middle-class suburban woman at home. It was a stereotype in the 1950s and it's still a stereotype today. But often images are idealized because they are changing. The fact was that in the 1950s, a growing proportion of women were working. Some were working to help buy the extras, the TVs, the cars, the phonographs that were now available. Others were working because they had always worked. Their families needed their income. They didn't fit the middle-class suburban image. Mary Adams Trujillo is African-American. She grew up in Evanston, a suburb of Chicago. No, it's not my family at all. I didn't know any of those people. Actually, the only people I knew that fit that stereotype were the people that my mother worked for. It was very typical for, um, for black families to have both parents working. And in fact, it has always been puzzling to me, the stereotype of, of how people would perceive black people as lazy because every African-American person, every black person I knew had at least a couple of jobs. And everybody worked all the time, all the time. But in fact, there were many women who weren't white. There were many women who weren't middle class. There were many women who did not live in suburbs. And even among the white middle class suburban women, there were many of them who were not quiescent and who didn't stay at home. No. Black women have always worked. That's why I have been uh, maybe a little cynical, maybe a little rough. When I've gotten in conversations with white women about the women's movement, I said, the women's movement doesn't apply to us. Nobody ever told us we couldn't go to work. Marjorie Parham speaks from experience. During World War II, she worked in a segregated defense plant. In the 50s, she kept on working at the Veterans Administration. Today, at age 77, she is still working as the owner of the Herald, an African-American newspaper. Blacks drew upon decades of dissatisfaction with their place in American society. During the 1940s and 50s, a number of organizations began to call for more equal rights. I woke up this morning when the man said I'm freedom. Oh, and I woke up this morning when the man said I'm freedom. Oh, and I woke up this morning when the man I was a volunteer with the Urban League, and um, four of us decided one day that we would go, this was during the war, that we would go to the show. And we knew we couldn't go in, but we were going to try. Dorothy Bailey lives in Cincinnati. In 1945, she had just returned there after receiving her master's degree at Smith College. And since I was the one 
who had the darkest skin, I would be the one to go to the show. And I'll never forget that walking up, asking the woman for a ticket, and she looked at me real crazy. And she says, I'm sorry, I can't sell you a ticket. And I said, what do you mean you can't sell me a ticket? She says, I just can't sell you. I said, you mean you don't let Negroes come in this theater? You know I knew that they couldn't. And she says, no. And so I stood there for quite a while. And so it stopped everybody else from buying tickets. So finally she left, and uh, I left too, and the uh, rest of the people left. And just in a very short time later, we got to go to the theater. As black men returned from the war, the first in which they had been permitted to fight in significant numbers, they were reluctant to again become second-class citizens. They had fought for democracy, and they wanted a larger share in it. Black women, having moved up the economic ladder during the war, wanted equality in other ways as well. I mean, we were very conscious of being black. How could you not be? The world that we moved in was very, very, very racially polarized. And I think people who didn't live in that time can't even conceive of it. When I, when I talk to my children about going to segregated schools, it doesn't even make sense to them. They don't understand it. They don't have a frame of reference. They don't understand that it doesn't just mean only one kind of people are present. They don't understand the whole segregated mentality. The attention that the, the nation gave to racial equality was something that women picked up on. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine that we would have had the kind of feminist movement that we had in this country without the precedent of the civil rights movement um, beginning in the late 50s. No segregation, no segregation, no Rosa Parks uh, was not just a tired woman who refused to give up her seat. She was already an activist, as were a number of other women in the 1950s. She was somebody who was already active in the local chapter of the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama, and had other activist roles as well. And Rosa Parks was not the first woman to be arrested in Montgomery, Alabama. She was the third woman to be arrested on a bus there. Uh, she was also not the only woman who was active in that particular movement for social justice. The Civil Rights Movement was an inspiration to a number of other activists in the 1960s. And many of the movements that emerged in the 1960s drew explicitly on the civil rights movement as a model. And so that was a very inspirational movement. And in fact, there were a number of younger people, both black and white, who became active in the racial justice movement, who then went on to work in other movements and took that inspiration with them directly. I had uh, had my political consciousness raised slowly. Someone recruited me to be a member of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. I became very active in the civil rights movement and then became more active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And all during that, I was beginning to see or experience that there was a certain place for women. But there were also some suburban and non-suburban women who maintained an activism we associate with the 1960s but they maintained this activism in the 1950s and they were a bridge between the early 20th century activism and the activism of the 1960s. So in fact the roots, all of the movements that arose in the 1960s have their roots in the 1950s and earlier. 
So you can find roots of the women's movement, you can find roots of the gay and lesbian liberation movement, you can find roots of the civil rights movement, of course, you can find roots of the anti-war movement. All of those have roots in the 1950s. I am asking everything you have to give. I am asking everything you have to give. We will never give up. We will never give up. We will never give in. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never give up. We will never give in. We will never. We are here to work. Part three of the series America's Women, A Legacy of Change was written and produced by Sandra Slight Brennan. The associate producer and mixdown engineer was Doug Partouche. The narrator was Gay Dalzell. Assistant Professor of History Catherine Jellison was the historical consultant. The show was edited by Mark Robinson. Production assistants were Marilyn Rausch and Colleen Murphy. We will never give in. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never give up. We will never give in. We will never give in. America's Women, A Legacy of Change is a production of the Ohio University Telecommunications Center. The series is funded in part by the Ohio Humanities Council, the Ohio Arts Council, and the Ohio University Research Fund.